It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Movies You Should Love podcast. I'm Lauren, and with me, as always, is my erstwhile companion... Scott. Erstwhile. <laughs> I don't know. Seemed good. <laughs> um, hey, we're glad you're with us. Um, as always, you can... F- Join in the conversation with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash movies you should, on Twitter at movies you should, and on our website, movies you should love.com. Um, as a quick overview, what we do here is we're going to take a look at a movie. Today's movie is uh, the 1991 movie, uh, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. And uh, we're going to kind of pick through it and analyze it and figure out why it's considered to be the movie that everyone considers it to be today um so that's kind of basically what we do and we do that with all kinds of movies and you can get on itunes and look at our back catalog and our you know obviously after this our forward catalog at some point and uh uh yeah we'd uh we're just gonna have some fun here uh but before we get to that uh let's talk about some of the other stuff that we have been watching here recently scott what have you been up to a uh, couple things, actually. Uh, first off, I thought I would kind of update. I think it was in the last episode I talked about the miniseries Titanic, uh, written by uh, Julian Fellows, who you know is kind of responsible for Downton Abbey. Um, when I when when we last recorded the podcast, I had just started the miniseries. I think I believe it's four episodes long, and I think I was about halfway through it, and I had some issues with the structure of the way they were telling the story. Now that it's over. I still have those same issues. I've seen the whole thing, and I was going to post it on the website, but I thought I'd rather just talk about it here. Um, and I'm really, I really want you to watch this, Lauren, because I know you weren't a big fan of James Cameron's take on the Titanic tragedy. Yeah, um, definitely check out that podcast. Yeah, like it's, it's a great old... podcast. We, we verbally duke it out. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, I, but I was very curious about this one because you know this one kind of going into it, knowing uh, Julian Fellows. Uh, kind of eye for authenticity, especially with the class structure of the time. This, this seemed like right up his alley and would be something that would be really interesting to watch. And um, the, the the miniseries is very smartly done when it comes to approaching the uh, the clear budget it could require to make a, a movie or a miniseries of this size. Mm. And they very smartly kind of edit around certain moments so that certain things are taking place in the background. For example, when the ship um, is kind of pulled vertical and then it breaks and then it gets pulled underwater, you see that, but it's kind of in the background while we're also looking at these other people fighting to survive in the water on the boat. That way they're not spending a whole lot of money creating this digital special effect but you know exactly what's happening and it's it's done very smartly and i have to really applaud them for picking and choosing the way they kind of shot around some of that because Mm -hmm. if you were eagle-eyed kind of wanting to know how they were going to pull that off you might not notice it my biggest gripe about this however is that and this may be due to the fact that julian fellows tends to write very dry dialogue and have a very kind of he's so concerned with certain amounts of authenticity that there's a definite lack of emotion <laughs> to mm-hmm. a lot of it. There are a couple characters um, I'm not going to spoil anything. Is Bates um, one of them? Bates is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but there, but there's, a couple, there's a character that you kind of like in the same way you like Bates. There's a, there's a character um, who has, who's having a hard time with his wife at the beginning of the voyage and they have a kind of a resolution 
as the as the story concludes, and it's very heartfelt. And there is a a girl who is very adorable, and you really are rooting for. She's a a maid. Um, I'm not a maid. She's well, she's basically a maid on the on the ship, and you you're really rooting for her. There's certain characters you really like, um, but as you start watching certain ones die, the movie actually about halfway through it, it turns into a horror film. Okay, kind of. Kind of. In that, when you sit down to watch a horror film, um, basically you, you're sitting there kind of waiting for everybody to die, and you're wondering who's going to die first, who's going to die second, and how they're going to die horribly. Um, that's essentially what this miniseries becomes, because you start, you, you end up liking a, most of the people that are on the show, and then you realize most of them are going to die. And then you go, well, which one is it going to be, and how they're going to do it? And so, the other thing is, while there's a lot of uh, real people in this, you know, they're authentic characters that are, you know, portraying real historical people. There's also a handful of fictitious characters in this that are there just to help flush out the voyage. Um, and so, once people start dying, it starts to feel a little arbitrary. Like, no, this one's going to die, and then we're going to split this up because that's going to be sad, and then they're going to die over there, and it just it it ends up feeling very unnecessary, especially when you. For me, when I compare it to the movie Titanic, um, which to me was a very emotional, especially when you get to the actual sinking of the ship, it's it's so cinematic um, that I can't help but have an emotional response to watching even people whose names I don't know die or being sucked back into the ship or whatever. Like, oh, this is horrible. This is so stately at times that you almost don't care. And then you also realize that you're just watching people die, basically. So at this point... Whether or not you like the movie Titanic, I um, I almost feel like because of the movie Titanic, there never needs to be another movie about Titanic again. Yeah, without actually having seen this particular version, um, just thinking about the James Cameron Titanic, one of the things that I think, even when we disagreed on it in our podcast, um, one of the things that I think that I was saying is that I did think that the overall sinking of the ship was incredibly successful yes. um, in it. And, you know, just just thinking back on it, even if you didn't have the, the Jack and Rose love story mm-hmm. and all of their chase scenes and stuff during the sinking interspersed with it, mm-hmm. if you just had the stuff where, you know, the boat is splitting in half and people are falling and, right. you, know, you know, the the shots of the actual tragedy and not the Jack and Rose story, I think because it is such large spectacle and because it is so well done, mm-hmm. I think that there is just genuine emotion in those scenes, yeah, um, and whether you had Jack or Rose or not. And those ideas and those visuals are so ingrained in your head that mm-hmm. a lot of this kind of feels really just unnecessary. You just kind of go, oh, here are people who are going, I'm in first class. I'll just swim to the next boat. It'll be fine, you know? And you go, no, you, you can't. I know what happens in the water. And so it's like, there, there's so much of it. There's even less suspension of disbelief. There's even less like, oh no, they don't know what's going to happen because you know so well what's going to happen. What I wish they had done with this, um, honestly, is because, like I said, I believe it's a four-part miniseries. I really wish the first two episodes had been like the boat and the sinking. I w- the part that hasn't been covered yet is what happens after the sinking. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we know they get picked up by the Carpathia. People end up in New York. and But I would have been very interested to follow some of these characters, especially the, the historical characters, into their life after Titanic, especially the weeks following that. How do some of these people rebound from that? Do they go back home to England? Some of the drama of, you know, survivor's guilt, I think, mm-hmm. could have been very interesting. Um, but as this ends, it basically, you see who lives and who dies, and then it just almost very abruptly cuts to this black screen going, you know, 15 people, 1,500 people died. Uh, it's been 100 years, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's just like, oh, and now we're over. It's like it, there was very little follow-up, which at this point, the only thing I think we could really do that I would still be interested in is a well-put-together documentary or documentary series that, again, really follows people before, during, and after the sinking, mm-hmm. specifically after, because... That was the cool thing about this. Because of the structure of each episode, you did get to see certain decisions being made during the building of the ship. And there are you know, definitely um, some really cool historic- historical accuracies to the separation of the classes, including this the second class, which you never saw in the movie, uh, in James Cameron's movie, and a class you don't often hear about. It's always the upper, the first class and third class. But you had a group of people in this movie, that or this miniseries, that were kind of in between and who were still weren't allowed in certain portions of the ship, you know, in both directions. Because, oh, no, this is third class. You should be back up on your deck, sir. Oh, no, this is first class. You should be back down on your, your deck. It was, it was, so there are parts of it that are very interesting. There's a couple of characters I really did like. Overall, it kind of felt unnecessary, which kind of is sad. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, uh, speaking of miniseries, uh, technically not a miniseries, but a, a TV series that I've been uh, catching up on here. Um, I've been watching Falling Skies. Yeah. Um, I saw is, the first couple episodes of that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's um, If you've seen the first couple of episodes, it, it's about... It, it stays about the same. It doesn't... You okay. know, if they didn't float your boat, then I don't know that the rest of the series will or not. Um, but that said, it's... You know, it's it's a decent kind of summer um, action sci-fi series, mm-hmm. um, which I, I, I've been really enjoying overall. Um, you know, it has it has some major issues to it, and I, I you know I don't want to minimize some of those. Um, but what I thought was really interesting um, is that the first season, like about seventy percent of it is very similar to an idea you and I had early on for, oh, yeah? um, for a, uh, a series that we wanted to work on. Um, and it's very similar to some early drafts of, of that that we wrote. Um, so from that alone, Scott, I would recommend you should see it. Um, <laughs> is this going to make me sad? <laughs> not necessarily. Just, you know, some stuff happens in, in an elementary school. And oh. There's, there's uh, kind of this you know, characters who are discussing different things and, nice. um, yeah, you, you should, you, you might want to check it out for everybody else. Uh, you know, you're probably not going to have that kind of, uh, connection, connection to, it. to it. Um, that's funny, but man, it, the, here's what I want to say about the series. It is executive produced by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And I think both all of the stuff that I really like about it and all of the stuff that I really dislike about it all come from the fact that Spielberg is involved in it. Interesting. Um, I think he brings a certain level of quality mm-hmm. to the to the series that most sci-fi series don't have. Although at the same time, there is some really cheesy effects in here in places, especially some of the uh, the robot mech kind of characters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. They're not implemented, especially early on, nearly as well as they could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, you know, some of the CG work is just not really super great. But um, aside from that, there's kind of this weird thing, because for those of you who don't know, it's kind of a, a post-apocalyptic, the, the aliens have come and basically... We lost, and now it's yeah, us trying to survive. Yeah, there's survival, you know, these small groups. Um, it's kind of sort of really, really loosely based on the Revolutionary War, um, without being at all. Um, but a lot of the same kind of ideas. Right. Um, but basically, you're that following... Does sound like what we... Oh! Yeah. Basically, you're, you're following the 2nd Massachusetts um, Army, which is has formed as kind of a resistance group, and there's several other small resistance groups, kind of, that have sprung up. And, um... Um... The, uh, the main character is, uh... uh this ex-history teacher who is now the second in command of the army and um or of, of this unit of the army the militia of the militia and um it's very interesting because because that concept that there is this history teacher who is now the second in command of the militia is very interesting because it allows them to speak to historical relevance of war and that kind of thing mm-hmm. but it also completely undoes the entire central thrust of this show which is that there is a civilian population still that they are traveling with and they're trying to protect Mm -hmm. and it's very um every decision that everybody makes in this show revolves around it it, specifically the main character noah wiley's character Mm -hmm. um he has three kids who have all survived. Nobody else has kids who have survived, basically. Except for a surprising amount of people who actually have had kids that survive, as you find out. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's, it's kind of, that's a twist. Yeah. But, but only sort of. You know, it's kind right, of like, right. oh, look! And now his kid has survived, too. Great. Yeah. Yet another one, you know, kind of thing. Or, yeah. or whatever. Um, but whatever. You know, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they have to tell us. They're, they're doing a series, whatever. You know, writing is writing for TV. Um, it is. But there's kind of this central thrust where the everything he does, he does to protect his kids. Mm-hmm. And every decision he or anybody else makes for the army is to pr- protect the civilian population. Mm-hmm. And there is kind of this element of, you have 300 people. How can you call, you know, left in in the entire state of Massachusetts at this point? Right. How can you call any of them a civilian population when every single one of them is fighting for their life? Like, wouldn't you train every single one of those persons how to use a gun? Even if it's the doctor, even if it's, you Absolutely. know, the guy who's, who's working on electronics. Yeah. Every single one of those people should know how to use a gun, know how to, you know, yeah. make ammunition for your guns, you know. There it should not be... Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, the nine-year-old kids are not there to be protected at this point. You, I mean, they are, yeah, but they also need to know how to fight for themselves. It's not, it's not like, no, you're innocent. We're going to spare you. Right. At this point, nobody is innocent. Nobody gets that luxury. Yeah. So that's kind of my my biggest issue with it is that there's kind of a disconnect between the reality of what it actually would be like and kind of the story they are trying to tell. Um, that said, there's some really interesting stuff and it's, it's, you know, they're in the second season and it's getting pretty interesting and stuff. So, um, despite some logical leaps and things. So anyhow, I don't know. Uh, you could spend your time on much worse things. Uh, Mm. it's, you know, such as the decoy bride. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, 
we are just like segueing right yeah, between stuff. This is fantastic. Crap out of that. Uh, of, uh, I will watch anything with David Tennant in it. And honestly, that's why I sat down to watch this. Um, it, the, the trailer didn't fill me with a lot of hope. Um, but at the same time, I did, it's, I did kind of hope that it would be maybe... Um, okay, it's a romantic comedy set in a little island off of Scotland. And the trailer didn't fill me with a lot of hope, but I went, maybe it's going to be like a Waking Ned Divine. Maybe it's going to be something that looks kind of small and is kind of small, but it's still really charming and fun. Um, you know, watching, I'm like, this is not going to be a love, actually. This isn't going to be like a big, awesome British comedy. Um, but it's on Netflix streaming. It's got David Tennant in it. It's got uh, Kelly McDonald in it from Boardwalk Empire and Trainspotting and Brave. And it also has uh, Dylan Moran in it whose name I might mispronounce, but he's the main character from Black Books. So I'm going to watch this movie. Um, everybody in this movie deserved a better script, is what it comes right down to. Um, it has some really charming moments. It's got a, it's got a, actually, and also has like a really great central concept for a comedy at the core. But the script needed two or three more drafts. It honestly did. It starts off... Because like, here's the confusion that takes place at the beginning of the film. The film's called The Decoy Bride. And we find out at the very beginning of the film that this uh, this American, this very famous American actress is about to get married. And to avoid the paparazzi, she hires like five or six decoys uh, to dress like her in different wedding gowns with veils so the, the paparazzi can't see which one to follow, basically. So it's and, like episode one of Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Took me a second. But yes, just like Padme and her uh, bodyguards. Yeah, so at the beginning of the film, you have the paparazzi outside this hotel, and then the bride comes running out, and they're snapping pictures, and they're kind of disappointed that they can't see her face. But she gets in the limo and drives off. Paparazzi are about to leave when another bride runs out, gets into a different limo, and drives a different direction. There's like seven of them, so the paparazzi are like, uh, which one do we follow? We want to take pictures of the, of the wedding. Um, we then follow the real bride. And she's about to get married. She's walking down the aisle in her dress. Groom is there. Church is full. And then, like, a paparazzi guy falls out of the organ because he's been hiding inside the organ taking pictures. And she chases him out of the church. And then we cut to Scotland. And they're arriving there to get married. So we are left to assume the whole wedding was canceled due to this one photographer. They don't talk about it, though. They don't mention it. They don't mention all the other brides. And then they get to Scotland to have this very rural Scottish wedding away from Hollywood, away from the paparazzi. And they're going to finally have this wedding just between the two of them, um, her and her uh, author husband, who's played by David Tennant. And so uh, paparazzi find them there. So they hire a local girl to pretend to be her so they can stage a wedding. So the, so that the paparazzi will take pictures of that wedding. Then once the paparazzi leave, they'll have their real wedding. It's a bit convoluted and it's overly messy because honestly, a, I think a really fun movie could have been made out of that opening credit sequence where you have like seven brides. And so you could have had like a rat race like movie where you have, you're following different groups of photographers of different brides, you know, as they, as they try to distract each other from this one wedding, which is a dumb big, romantic comedy concept anyway but who cares if it's a big dumb comedy um yeah and then of course you know halfway through uh the the groom and the decoy bride accidentally in real life actually get married and so now they're married 
and they hate each other and then they love each other <laughs> and then you know so it's like it's a lot of these ideas that just like it's like hold on hold on slow down think this through what movie do you want to make because i would have i would say either do the opening credit sequence movie or cut that out and just start the movie with them arriving in scotland going we want to get married here because that opening credit sequence wasn't very funny and also just served to kind of confuse the rest of the film um everybody in this i think is a a pretty awesome actor and honestly deserves better it's just like it kind of makes you sad when you see such people that you people you love so much in other films other tv um doing stuff that just go oh is that the only film script you could get i'm sorry dude that sucks um because it is it has its moments and again i love the cast so much more than what the film actually is so it's not it's not terrible you know it's like <laughs> is it the best romantic comedy ever no does it have david Tennant in it yes <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, well, something that doesn't have David Tennant, but is a uh, also not really a romantic comedy. Man, our segues are getting worse. Um, our man. No. Um, uh, I I know you and I have both watched the the pilot episode of the newsroom, and I am a couple of episodes. Well, I'm, I'm caught up on it basically, and you're a couple episodes behind now. The three episode that they posted on YouTube. Right. Um. But we should probably talk about that ever so briefly. Um, you know, for those of you who need to know what this is, it's an HBO series that is coming out. Basically, um, Jeff like- Daniels, uh, written by Aaron Sorkin, um, and it's uh, about um, a news anchor who decides to start doing the news rather than, uh, you know, making a ratings free for all on his news program. Um, anyhow, what did you think of the of the pilot? episode i really loved it um i will have to also admit i'm a huge aaron sorkin fan um i i want to live in the worlds he creates more times than not and honestly i know there's been some uh not controversy but i know there has been it seems to be a kind of a divisive show people either seem to really like it or absolutely loathe it um i i can't speak to its accuracy you know when it comes to like because there's some people that I've heard talk about it who kind of talk about how that's not really how a newsroom would be, blah, blah, blah. Um, to me, not not everything could be all the president's men. To me, it really is. When I watch The West Wing, and that's a show I've watched all the way through at least once, and I've watched a lot of the show episodes several times, um, I know that's not how politics is. But that's how I want politics to be. You know, it's like I watch The West Wing and I go, I really hope somebody in Washington is having this conversation right now. And that's kind of how I felt about the newsroom, at least that first episode. It's like, I, this is probably not how the media is, but man, I hope there's somebody right now that's saying this and believing this and trying to do this because this is kind of what I want to see. I love Aaron Sorkin's uh, dialogue. I like I like a lot of his ideas, The his philosophies and politics, I really do kind of get behind. Um, so... Yeah, I really liked it, so much so that Kelly and I are um, trying to figure out how we can afford to get HBO because we are sick and tired of not being able to watch awesome television shows <laughs> as they come out. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, uh, man, the newsroom is is really mixed. Um, I think overall I would give it a positive review, um, but it is, man, it's it, it, it's uneven at best. Um, 
I think that the main character, Jeff Daniels' character, is really, really well written, and he delivers it really, really well, which is good because he is kind of that central figure to everything. He is the news anchor. He, you know, and so he's the one who gets so to, yeah, you know, so he gets to have a lot of the big, important speeches and stuff that's in it, you know, and and so that's that's good that he's delivering it really well, and I think anytime he is on screen, the show gets way better. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the show, which has a really good cast to it and, and every you know i don't want to knock it for that um the, the specifically the the executive producer character there's there's this executive producer she spent you know years out in war zones and mm-hmm. and um you know she's she has this amazing pedigree and they bring her in and her character is so in in my mind so poorly conceived and and written mm. um you know, she's she's a person who you know supposedly has been entrenched with you know uh, soldiers for years and has been you know reporting from the front and um, you know possibly has been wounded or th- you know we don't we don't know everything she's gone through but I yeah. mean she is a tough woman from yeah. everything we understand and she gets back to the uh, to the newsroom and um, you know she she basically turns into um, a screwball comedy. Like if a if one of the anchors, you know, because she and the anchor used to be romantically involved, yeah. but like if one of his new girlfriends shows up in the in the uh, on set, like she turns into like she can't handle it, kind of thing in public, and like I don't know anybody who hasn't been through those war situations, you know, yeah. women who work at that executive kind of level. Mm-hmm who are going to be that um, flipping out in public kind of thing. You know, almost everybody that I know at that level, at a bare minimum, even if they were going to have that reaction, would make sure they got into a private office somewhere Mm -hmm. or, you know. Even people do that. And we're, I mean, even at my job where we're not, it's not like super professional place, but it's like, there's some, there's been awkwardness there before, you know, and it's people just deal with it. It it doesn't become a screwball comedy. It doesn't become, a huge deal. It just becomes awkward and a little bit tense and then it passes when the person leaves or whatever. Yeah. And and that happens, it's happened in basically every episode. It even happens a little bit in the very first, in the mm-hmm. pilot episode. Yeah. And um, it's not horrible in there, but it, that is the one thing about the show that, to me, into the, what, I guess, third episode now gets worse, is that her character does that more and more. Interesting. And so, and so that is... To me, that's really poorly conceived characterization, and that really pulls me out of the show, because otherwise, I like the actress in, in the place, and when she's, like, mm-hmm. you know, nailing stuff, you know, and, and making Jeff Daniels' character, like, really... Making him a better person. Gun, yeah, <laughs> like, that stuff is really great. Um, also, I do think the the shooting and the and the editing and stuff gets tighter as it goes along the very first episode um has some really uh poorly structured um, yeah there was a couple sequences that even yeah. i and i'm not i'm not usually the best eye for editing um but there was a couple sequences that felt a little awkward to me but the guy came in and tripped over the suitcase yeah there's felt really kind of weird like oh it's okay. it's almost like there's these little moments where it's almost like 
you're watching a stage production rather than like a yeah. movie. Yeah. And it's like, and now this character enters from the wings and he trips <laughs> over a suitcase. And that is his introduction to the series. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that a great entrance for him? You know, there's kind of these things or like somebody will be like, Oh look. And you know, you're going to meet this guy named David. He's going to be awesome. You're going to love him. Oh, look, here he is now. Kind of thing. You're like, yeah, yeah. Look, David applause. You know, <laughs> we're glad to see this actor. And you know, it's, yeah. That gets a lot better. They get better at, at kind of fixing some of that stuff as they get rolling with it. So those are, I, I know I, I know I just talked about negatives. A lot of negatives right there. That's it. That's my negatives. Other than that, I've actually felt the show is really even and balanced politically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that they... The third episode really deals with hammering against the Tea Party. Um, is the whole show set in 2010? So far, Okay, I was curious, because so I was kind of surprised 30 minutes into the, the first episode where it's like April 20th, 2010. I go, oh, okay, this is yeah. a period piece. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third episode, we get to election night. so oh. um, Interesting. So I don't know how far they'll take it. You know, I don't know if it'll yeah. get current or, or what by the end. But, um, you know, it's been pretty balanced. Um, you know, I think there's stuff in here that is going to offend anybody who has... Uh, major political beliefs about anything. Um, Unless you're someone who is really fed up with the system and couldn't give a flip about parties at this point. Um, And I think that's kind of what both you and I respond to it is that, is that it isn't a partisan show. It's kind of saying the whole system is messed up and we need to be looking at this. So um, anyhow, a newsroom, I would say highly worth your time to check out, even despite the flaws. Yep. And I think it will get better. Yeah. It's already been renewed for a second season, which is pretty incredible. Yep. Uh, last right. thing, or do yeah. you want to just move right into it? We've been, are we too long uh, with I, it? I think this is a current movie. You should do it, and then we'll save anything else we've got for... for okay. Better. I just want to touch on Brave. Um, it's in theaters now. Um, by the time you hear this, maybe not. But um, <laughs> Pixar's latest, and uh, Kelly and I went and saw this, I think, opening weekend, and we both really, really enjoyed it. Um there's been, you know, what was really amazing to me is how quickly people started criticizing and critiquing it, and everybody, we're, we live in an age where everybody has instant commentary on everything, which I think is sometimes too bad. I think sometimes things need a little bit more room to breathe and exist. Um, Brave is very interesting to me, because really what it struck me as, even halfway through the movie, was that Brave was taking the Pixar princess formula and kind of turning it on its ear, kind of like, we're going to take this thing that's always kind of been done by Disney, and we're going to do it our way. Um, It's really astonishing. There is no antagonist in this film. There's no villain. There's no prince. There's no, you know, there's these ideas in it that are very reminiscent of the, oh, she's the princess who doesn't want to be a princess anymore. And, you know, there is some of that. But the, the real antagonist in this film is the lack of communication and it's very clear and that's really the point of the film um you find out like the the daughter and the mother just aren't talking to each other they're they're, or when they do talk they're not listening and if they would just listen to each other they could actually come to an understanding and that was what was really cool about this film was that that is a very relatable villain we all face and they they put it in this family film and the conclusion is this really cool um, compromise? Basically, it's you know, it's not 
Um, like when you watch Aladdin, and in the end, the, the Sultan's like, you know what? Years of tradition have been wrong. You can do what you want, Jasmine. Marry whoever you want. At the end of this film, you know, the daughter understands why her parents are so uh, kind of grounded in tradition, and she really grows to respect it and understand it, and also embrace it. In the same, but at the same time, the mother also goes, "But you're not wrong either, Merida, and we really should." maybe allow for certain things to slowly change over time while still us still holding tight to our traditions we need to you know acknowledge that this this and this so uh we really enjoyed it there's a really funny twist about two-thirds no about a third into the movie that is not in any of the trailers so it's got some of the best marketing ever because there's a very big part of this film that uh, is not even not even hinted at in the trailers, um, and I'll tell you about it after the podcast. I don't want to spoil it for anybody because it's such a delightful, strange, out of right field twist that like you go, wait, what? This movie's about what now? What happens? It's basically Act Two is not in the trailers, and it's pretty phenomenal. Nice, <laughs> very cool. Yeah, um, definitely that is on my list to see. You know, anything yeah. Pixar, but yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, before we switch gears here, I just uh, I think this episode specifically we should. Oh, do you have one more thing to say? There was one more thing. There, I have one. I did have one gripe about Brave, and it's something that I've been thinking about for a while about other movies I've seen, and it really came to a head in this movie. There is an after credits sequence, an after credits scene in this movie that I don't think should have been an after credits scene. Um, that it's become it's become increasingly popular to put like a scene at the end of the credits. Um, sometimes they will even have two. They'll have one mid halfway through the credits, and they'll have one at the very very end. Um, in this movie, there is a very clear joke setup about a third into the movie, and the payoff isn't until after the credits, which kind of bothers me because it actually makes the movie. I don't count the after credits scene as part of the movie. I, maybe I should, but like in the past, most after credit scenes are usually a one-off joke unto itself or a reference back to something like, oh, remember this? Aha, here it is again. It's kind of funny. But it actually, to me, the, the movie should end at the credits. Once the credits begin, that's the end of the story. And if you look at it that way, it actually makes a portion of this film... Um, you kind of go, oh, what about that thing? They set it up. I totally expected it to have a, a good payoff. It does have a good payoff, but not until after the credits, which frustrates me because I, I'll watch after credit scenes. I like them, but if I own this movie, which I probably will, it's like now to get that payoff for this thing you set up, I'm going to either have to fast forward or sit through the credits every single time where I feel like that, especially the, the payoff that it is, it could have been so easily incorporated into the final montage conclusion of the film and been a really funny thing. And then you'd be like, ha, 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 ha. And it would have been a really great ending to the film. And then you could have had a, a different end credit sequence. I'm not, I'm not sure about my feelings in general about end credit sequences or scenes. I do kind of feel like, though, they should be a one-off thing. They should be a, a joke that's not necessary or a, an extra bit that isn't central to the plot. Or a tease for the next movie. Or or... Like, that's fine, but I think it almost needs to be disconnected from the film mm-hmm. so that it's not a requirement to get the full experience. Because, yeah, it's like credit sequences are three to five minutes long, and while I respect everybody who's made this movie, and I will sit through a lot of credit sequences, once I own the movie, I'm probably not going to watch the credits every single time. 
So anyway, sit through the credits. It's a cool scene, um, but you'll probably know what it is once you watch the film because there's a, a very big setup to something that has no payoff until then after the credits. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Oh, no, no problem. I was just going to say, uh, as we get into our movie of the of the week, which is Silence of the Lambs, uh, we should probably just put a disclaimer on the beginning. You know, this is labeled a clean podcast and stuff. But as we get going, this is a movie about serial killers and stuff, and we may have to mention semi-disturbing things. So if this is not your kind of thing... Or if there's um, kids in the room, or, or if there's kids in the room, or whatever, we're not going to be sitting around swearing or anything, but we may say stuff that is just disturbing content. Tapioca. No. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. This is your warning for getting. You know, this yeah. is it's an R-rated serial killer film, and we're yeah, probably well, going to be talking that. about other stuff. So. So yeah, uh, Silence of the Lambs, Scott. You want to hear how Netflix describes this movie? I always want to hear how Netflix describes a movie, because it's hilarious. In this pulse-pounding adaptation of Thomas Harris's novel, FBI trainee Clary Starling ventures into a maximum security asylum to pick the diseased brain of Hannibal Lecter, <laughs> a psychiatrist-turned-homicidal cannibal. Starling needs clues to help her capture a serial killer. Unfortunately, her Faustian relationship with Lecter soon leads to his escape, and now... Two deranged killers are on the loose. <laughs> wow, that is both accurate and inaccurate all at the same time. Yeah, it's like, this is true for the last five minutes of the film. Wow. <laughs> I mean, because yes, I mean, for those of you who haven't seen the film, Hannibal Lecter does escape from prison. No. That is a big part of kind of like middle, about act two of the film. Uh-huh. I was actually surprised. I've always kind of equated his escape to the very end of the film, but it's actually a big portion of Act Two of this film. Yeah. Um, but there's not there's not a point where Clarice is chasing now two killers, and which is what was hilarious to me about this. Which this sounds like the setup to a movie that doesn't exist. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's not what actually happened. It is, but I mean, at no but point. so not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, man. So, yeah, this is a 1991 film. Directed by Jonathan Demme. Yep. And it won a bunch of Academy Awards. What, five Academy Awards? Uh, something like that. Um, best Actor, Best, best Actress, Best, best Director, actors. Best Picture, and Best Writing. Yep. So, um, yeah, people liked it uh, yep. then. And, uh, yep. you know, and it's here on the AFI's Top 100 list. It's, what, number 74, something like that. I think so. And, um, you know, on the one hand, this is a... You know, it's a it's a really dark, disturbing, twisted, sick little world that this movie exists in. Yes. And at the same time, it is an incredibly effective movie. Yes. Man, this movie works so well. Yeah. Because um, putting the Netflix thing aside, what it's about is Jodie Foster plays Clarice Starling, a young um, FBI agent cadet something trainee um who gets pulled into this investigation uh for this uh this homicidal crazy person uh called buffalo bill who uh serial killer killer, kidnaps kills and um skins uh women and so they're trying to track him down and so they kind of go oh no we can go to we can talk to hannibal lecter this other serial killer uh who was this man's uh psychiatrist 
before they both went their crazy ways. Um, and so she goes to him and talks to him in prison. And then, so the, the movie's really about her chasing down Buffalo Bill and Hannibal Lecter, who really is honestly, most people kind of remember as the villain of this, of this film. And he's the most, because it's Hannibal Lecter. We can get into that here in a second. Um, she uses him. They kind of have like this quid pro quo, this, um, you give me information, I'll give you information relationship that helps lead to the capture of Buffalo Bill. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a very interesting movie that kind of, is it a thriller or is it a horror? Do you want to get into that now? Uh, yeah, we can. Um, because because I would, I would put this under psychological thriller. Because to me, there is this element of, yes, there's this hunt for Buffalo Bill, and the stuff with him is truly disturbing and horrific. And the last, you know, 20 minutes of the film, 15 minutes, whatever it is, with the big chase and everything. And I mean, it is a truly scary, scary sequence. Um, yeah. because it just is. I mean, it it is. And, and all of the stuff with him is really disturbing. But to me, that is kind of almost the sub-story of this movie, because really this movie is about the games that Lex- Lecter is playing with Clarice, and to an extent what Clarice is doing back to him. Yeah. Um, she, you know, she is doing it for a noble purpose, if you will, and so she's kind of playing into his things, while at the same time manipulating him just a little bit. And he does it with everybody he meets. I mean, he yes. does it to that uh, senator, and to like yeah. anytime he gets a chance to talk to somebody, he's messing with their head. He is getting inside their head. And and so to me, I mean, that is almost the definition of a psychological thriller. Is you know. <laughs> people trying to mess with your head and that is entirely what this movie is about is the mm-hmm. main whatever you want to call him you know anti antagonist whatever yeah. An- uh, you know, you know yeah. he he is there purposely to mess with both your head a little bit as an audience and with the head of the main character and that's really what this movie is about is his mm-hmm. is his his whole set of things while there's kind of this mystery framework to put it into i agree i have a hard time sometimes with the thriller genre because i'm not sure it should exist sometimes Mm -hmm. i feel like the thriller genre exists because horror films took a very gory uh exploitive route sometime in the 70s and 80s and so you have these other movies like because to me this seems like a subset of psycho and you know the Alfred Hitchcock horror films. Yeah, I, I would say this definitely feels like a modern. You know, if Hitchcock was making movies today, mm-hmm. this is much more what he would be doing. Absolutely. And so, to me, is I kind of go, it feels like a like a, a classic horror film. And so, I don't know what to do with the thriller genre, but since it exists, since we have to, you know, it's like, well, I guess it exists. So, to me, this is absolutely a thriller. It does have some horrifying sequences in it. Um, and some really grisly imagery, but it is more about how the psycho- the psychological games, like you said. Mm-hmm. And what's very fascinating is that, to me, some of the most disturbing stuff in this movie um, is some of the more psychological stuff. There's that whole sequence where, where Clarice goes into the prison for the first time. Yes. Um, with the dude next to her, yeah. or next to, next to him, and, yeah. you know, the events as she you know, leaves the room and, um, you know, and just him messing with her. And then like, as he keeps saying stuff to her, the way that he'll be answering a question and then turn it into like a sexual strange thing, or, I mean, there's just so many, you know, it's just, it's really disturbing. You know, it is. It's, 
he is really in a lot of ways kind of the worst nightmare villain because mm-hmm. he could exist there's nothing supernatural about him there's nothing um, nothing that couldn't actually happen or exist in our real society and he is so perceptive as soon as she shows up he notices her shoes, he notices her buttons, he notices her accent, and is immediately able to place each of those things and is able to decipher what that means. Like, if she's wearing those shoes, that means she shops at Walmart, which means she doesn't have a lot of money, or she's concerned about this. And with that accent, I can couple that with this background family history, and he he just, just nails her, just goes, mm-hmm. this is who you are, why are you so ashamed? You know, you're just kind of like, God, get out of my head. And it's just, it's almost like a perverted sherlock holmes the way he's often kind of shown to be and it's super creepy um to the extent like i've i've spent a lot of my life uh writing skits and plays especially when i was in um high school and college i wrote a lot of plays uh for church i went to a private school into a private university and so i write a lot of skits for church groups and things and often I've told other I've told other people this before. When I would have to write a devil character, if I was writing about the devil or Satan, I often would go back to Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of Hannibal Lecter because it was so effective. And on a lot of ways, I kind of almost he's he's such a personification of evil in this that um, it has truly affected me. I, I I draw inspiration from it quite frequently. Yeah, it's um, it, it truly is an amazing performance because from everything i hear uh and from what i've seen in every other movie you know anthony hopkins is just like this amazing guy and you know great to work with and stuff and then you see this movie and like he is the most evil person in the world (laughs) yeah and um no it's amazing and uh i mean jodie foster is amazing there's nothing about this movie other than the fact that it is truly maybe the scariest most horrific movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, that isn't fantastic. And even that is kind of fantastic about it in a yeah. way. Like, I mean, that's, that's the point of what this movie does mm-hmm. is it, is it really exists to show this particular thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it does it masterfully. And, and for my, for my reading, um, I have to find this again, but my, from my understanding, Anthony Hopkins is has the record for person who has an award for best uh, best performance from an actor in the shortest amount of time he's actually on screen. You know, it's like he's only on screen for 16 minutes of this film, which is kind of astounding because he dominates this film. Um, for mo- more modern audiences, um, I I really equate his performance. Um, to the Joker in The Dark Knight because everybody thinks about Heath Ledger and the, and the Joker in The Dark Knight um, because you feel his presence through the entire film, but he's really not in the movie that much in the same way Hannibal Lecter. When people talk about Silence of the Lambs, they think about Hannibal Lecter. Nobody thinks about Buffalo Bill, which is mm-hmm. kind of a shame, but also very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I, I, there's, there's so much about this movie. Uh, you know, I don't want to to spoil everything, but I mean, um, Buffalo Bill is just truly creepy as yeah. well. There's there's a couple of sequences, <laughs> like the one where he's kind of dancing around. Yeah, like that that sequence every time is just hugely it's hugely like I, disturbing. I always forget about that sequence, and then I'm always like every time it happens, I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, he's just he's just so bizarre. Yeah, of a character and. um you know, uh, man, it, he, he's creepy, and and especially once 
Clarice starts chasing him. You know, there's there's a chase sequence mm-hmm. that ends up happening in the dark at the end, and and I, it is it is one of the most effective mm-hmm. um, chase sequences. And it's all just inside a single basement, and so yeah. it's like it's not like this really long drawn out chase sequence, mm-hmm. but it's like this cat and mouse monster in the house kind of a thing, and mm-hmm. it's really really effective. Yeah, and completely. I think the thing to me about this movie is it's a completely believable movie. Um, you know, it's it's the kind of thing... This movie, in 91, I think set the trend for every other discussion about serial killers yeah. and about... I mean, honestly, every crime show that is on TV that has had a, a serial killer episode has based it on this movie. Yeah. Um, I, I almost feel like, and I'm, I may be completely wrong, but I feel like this is the first one to really feature a serial killer, and and not just as like the monster in the dark. You know, a lot of, most other films I would say really kind of feature the the, the police officers or the detectives who mm-hmm. are trying to chase down this guy, and he's this weird, crazy guy who lives in the woods or whatever. In this, we really almost are allowed to peek inside the head of two serial killers, and it's really, really creepy and. I absolutely agree with what you said because I think there is this. Um, we got this taste of it in this movie, and we kind of went, "That's a really dark place, and it's real. There are people like this in our society, and there's a, a certain morbid fascination and curiosity of like, what do these people do? What you know, why do they do that?" But then I also think it works on this other level of, "What would it take for me to be pushed there? Is that something that I could become, or are you born that way? Is that just a? Is their brain broken, or?" Could a series of events lead me to become Buffalo Bill? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I, I really feel like this is kind of a—I don't know—the the serial killer we kind of feel is fairly modern, but I mean, even so, you know, you kind of go back to Jack the Ripper, and yep. that's kind of like that first—the first instance of a serial killer, and it's kind of in that. I don't know that shift from from medievalism into kind of the modern era yeah. is kind of when the serial killer shows up. But I really think that this whole concept of the serial killer really harkens back to that medieval time, and we have kind of the stories of like the warlocks and the witches and things who mm-hmm. you know perform human rituals, you know, druidic stuff where they're you know magic and human sacrifice and mm-hmm. you know mutilations and things. I, you know, I I think that this concept has been with us for a long time. I think we've put a modern and this is this movie is like the the culmination of a, of a lot of that i think oh you're abs- I, I i think you nailed it because if you think about even the way the set dressing for buffalo bill's uh room is where he's dancing and working on these mm-hmm. different things is very reminiscent of what a what you might see like even in a game of thrones type of a show or movie mm-hmm where you go to the witch and she's going to have all this weird stuff hanging on the walls mm-hmm. and all. it's like it's it's a lot of the same types of characters doing a lot of the same types of things you know he's sacrificing girls to appease his desire for a completely different exterior look you know mm-hmm. it's it's interesting yeah um you know i think that's something i think that's something that in a in a way humanity has kind of always been drawn to is kind of these dark places um you know why why do people do some of this and you know obviously you know i don't think i don't think the serial killers have done exactly what we see in this movie and you know and and you know a lot of these characters are composites of of real people and and generally the real people don't get to go as far 
and I say that I mean the, there have been so I don't I don't mean to minimize anything but no. you know uh, but this is a slightly sensational it's a sensational like, kind of, of taking thing taking the idea and extrapolating it into a cinematic experience you know yeah um but I mean it, so I, I guess here's my question Scott I think this is something you and I both struggle with um a little bit is what is the validity of this type of a genre kind of the horror genre the thriller genre i think that's something that you and i struggle with sometimes struggle with sometimes it's a very good question um i don't often and and have, i haven't ever i haven't actually yeah. ever asked myself that question in those words because yeah. um, this movie is is kind of that movie for me which is like the tipping point of that scale like this is this is inside it for me this is somehow this movie is important well, somehow to me, Saw is not. Yeah. Um, and so why is this movie and these dark places, why are they an important or valid place for us to be going? Sorry, I know that this was not great, anywhere in our... Oh, it's a great question. It's a great question. And I would love for people to respond to that on the website. Um, yeah. For me, what I, I'll, I'll, I'll say for me, what it... There are the dark sides of humanity that I think need to be addressed sometimes. And a movie like this really does appeal to a certain part of a certain part of me that even on on a on a on a day on a dark, depressing day, there are days where this really just kind of fits and I go, Oh, this feels good. Yeah, you know, I there is a certain it's hard to explain. It's a certain part of me that kind of just responds to a, a darker look at humanity that just kind of appreciates that and acknowledges that because sometimes I feel that. And I think for some people there is that, that they do kind of revel in some of that, those darker things. But for me as a person who doesn't really enjoy um, most horror films, I would say, because I do feel like they're so exploitive to me, this is a film that, or films like this, I feel like there's a, there's a greater conversation that there's a greater subtext to this film that makes it a little bit. I hate to say the word valid or make, makes the uh, more important, but you know, to an extent, you know, it's like like you said, the Saw movies. I've seen the first Saw movie, and I have no interest in seeing the rest because to me, they are just there to make me. They're there just to disturb. So to me, this is a movie that scares you more than disturbs you. And so the idea of being scared, I think we need to be scared sometimes. I think we need to be reminded. I think sometimes, if nothing else, we need to be pushed out of our comfort zone just a little bit to acknowledge either the fact that mortality is a real thing. (laughs) Don't feel like you have your entire life. But also, um, do what you can to help people. Because there are these darker elements in the world, and we don't know who people, you know, we don't know who, I don't know what my next door neighbor has survived. I don't know what my other next door neighbor is going through. And there is, there are these darker elements that maybe we can help in our own little ways. We can help bring people Mm -hmm. to the light, and not even in a super religious, spiritual way, but just bring people and help people have a good day. Because because of stuff like this that actually does happen and we need to acknowledge this or maybe we need to help doctors and other people in society explore these things and get to the root and cause of some of these so that it doesn't happen i don't know if that's an answer if i'm just making this up as i go but that's my <laughs> and that's my that's my, my initial response to that because 
it's hard for me to say that the movies like this need to exist, but I'm really glad that it does because I actually really like this film. Yeah. I, you know, for me, it's, you know, this is definitely a, a movie that I think it's important to note sometimes that evil is real versus fantasy. And this movie, I think, does a really good job of making evil seem like a plausible kind of thing. You know, I think so many movies we kind of get, you know, these these heightened action-adventure kind of things where evil is kind of, yeah, there's a bad guy, but it's, you know, a, a James Bond villain, and nobody like that actually exists in real life kind okay. of thing, you know? I need you to just delete everything I just said, because that's it. <laughs> 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 you know, but I mean, I'm glad we had this conversation because that's honestly, that's honestly how I feel. Is I do believe that there is evil in the world, and we need to acknowledge that, and we need to be prepared to fight yeah. that. And what's interesting, uh, you know, when we get into our kind of thing where we were going to talk about, um, you know, other suggestions and stuff. If you like this movie, you know, other things to watch. Uh, one of the things on there for me is is Dexter because I think it's mm. kind of a in, in a way it's kind of the spiritual follow up mm-hmm. to to the Hannibal Lecter character, um, and turning that evil character into a hero or anti hero yeah. character. Um, and so what's interesting is is Dexter does a really interesting job of kind of following up on these themes and again showing that there is real evil but it also does this thing about combating evil with evil in a way Mm -hmm. which is which is a very disturbing thing to me and so so this movie and movies like this or shows like this i have to take in a very small quantity like i i couldn't keep watching dexter i went back to it eventually and and caught up but i can't take it in in large doses, portions yeah. because it actually makes me f- start feeling darker and starting to identify more with that mm-hmm. evil side of things and and so i think that there does need to be balance in this but i think that it's still an important mm-hmm. an important side of storytelling mm-hmm. is to acknowledge evil and portray it in a you know Dexter takes it a little further it's 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 probably less believable in that it's just yeah. a lot more quantity um you know but but to show that there is real evil and that mm-hmm. some of this I, you know I think I think that is a valid thing to be saying about the world um anyway I don't know that's, that's no, it, just it, a it's, very it's a very interesting conversation just even the conversation of evil is a very interesting conversation because there are some people who don't believe in evil they right. believe well, in different beliefs or different mindsets or different decisions. Mm-hmm. And is that evil or is there an actual personification of evil? Is there, you know, what is, you know, to me, these characters are evil. But to themselves, they are not evil. I mean, to themselves, they're not evil. And movies like this, especially well done movies like this, show the humanity behind the evil and how that has maybe been twisted and how. You know, Hannibal Lecter could have been one of the greatest minds on the earth, but he has this thing now, and he will is going to continue pursuing that, and that is terrible. You know, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. So, um, I think we've really kind of already said it, but final thoughts on Silence of the Lambs. Rent it, buy it, avoid it. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, um, probably all of those, depending on who you are. <laughs> um, you know, I... I I mean, I know I know people who will never watch this movie, and you know, and that is fair. I think that there are people who don't 
want to go to these places. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a perfectly fair decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are movies that are a lot darker than this. There are movies that are a lot more graphic than this. There are a lot of movies that that go, you know, significantly worse places. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as... It's, it's, it's a very, very dark psychological thriller, if that's what it is, or it's a pretty light horror movie, mm-hmm. in a way, if it's a horror film. Um, that said, it is also, in my mind, also one of the most disturbing horror movies, because it actually does horror in the way that I like it to be done, which is in that, you know, less blood and guts, much more psychological messing with your mind kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, about things jumping out in the dark. It's about the entire aspect of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and that is and that is a much more scary thing to me. Um so if if that is kind of your thing, it you know, it's not going to be your typical hack and slash horror kind of movie. This is a slow burn. Mm-hmm. This is there's there are a couple of jump out of your seat moments, but not really. It's not that kind of a movie. This is kind of more that thing that is going to stick with you at no, two in the morning it's that, and make you not sleep. Or, it's it's one of those building dread kind of movies yeah. where it's like, oh no. Because there's yeah, like you said, there are a couple of jump out moments, but for the most part there isn't. There's just this you kind of know what's already happened. Speaking specifically about the the uh, Hannibal's breakout. Yeah. There's a moment that you're just like, you know what's happened and you're just waiting for the reveal because you know what's about to happen and it's happening now. Oh no. <laughs> you know. Yep. Um this is my favorite scary film. I mean just kind of hands down. It's you know, I don't often go to this place where I need to be scared. Most of the time I need a very fun escape from my frustrating life. Like last night I needed that. So I watched Batman Begins and Superman Returns. That's usually me. <laughs> you know, that's usually what I need at the end of the day. That being said, sometimes on a dark Saturday night, I want to go someplace dark, and I want to be kind of scared and reminded of that edge of society, and this movie does that for me. Um, The fact that uh, Buffalo Bill is a composite of three real-life serial killers is also terrifying, Uh, but for me, it is all about Anthony Hopkins, because this movie, the structure, the story, the content even is something that you might see on an episode of CSI or even house at this point. Well, not now it's off the air, but it's like, it's a lot of the content in this is not something that's super cinematic. Um, but today it it was then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins specifically, those two, um, are so phenomenal in their character work. Um, a little funny tidbit, this movie, coupled with Maverick, produced a very large crush on Jodie Foster for me when I was about 13 and <laughs> 14 years old. Um, and so it's like, I just, she's just a very strong female character who I just, I've always responded to, and she's great. And Anthony Hopkins in this is so terrifying. Like, he gets under your skin, even though he's talking to uh, Clarice the whole time. Mm-hmm. You're just going, yeah, you know, I'm so yeah. glad it's her and not me in that room. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is an interesting movie. Uh, just from that standpoint, is that so much of this movie is shot in these extreme close-ups of people's eyes. Um, And a lot of times they're looking right into the camera. Did you notice that? Yeah, and that's what what I was going to say, is like, especially with with, uh, Hannibal Lecter, 
you know, a lot of times, even though he is addressing Clarice, he is looking right at you into the camera as he says stuff. Which is and, which is something that you know most people absolutely avoid. You're not supposed to look into mm-hmm. the camera because it breaks that fourth wall. But this movie does it over and over again. Like mm-hmm. anytime someone's talking to Clarice, even like the whole movie is almost mm-hmm. shot from her perspective. Yeah. Because when she gets into a conversation, whether it's with her boss or with her roommate or with Hannibal, they'll start looking right into the camera. Clarice never does it. She's kind of looks slightly off camera, you know, mm-hmm. as you kind of expect. But these people are talking to you, having these conversations mm-hmm. with you, and it's it's offsetting. It is. It's very and it's it's very effective, and it does not it does not ever pull you out of the movie. No, I mean that this that is one thing with this movie is it it pulls you in more. It pulls you in more. The connection that you end up having with these characters it, it puts you in that room. You know, it mm-hmm. puts you into those uh, situations. So yeah, but like you said, this is definitely. I know some people who have no desire to acknowledge mm-hmm. this aspect of life, and that is fine. Um, yeah. I, that's I, it. If if you're willing to go there, masterful filmmaking. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Um, it, I don't know if it's ever really been done better in this genre when it comes right down to it, for me. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, we have three other Hannibal Lecter movies, and none of them have been as do- done as well as this. And that goes right into my other suggestions. Four like, other movies. Yeah, there's been there's been several. And there was one called Manhunter that came out before this. I've never seen it, um, but it has a completely different cast. And yeah. apparently it was such a flop that the guy who had the rights to it gave the rights to Silence of the Lambs away for free to Orion who doesn't exist anymore. But he's like, here, make Silence of the Lambs. I don't care. Manhunter failed. Mm-hmm. Some people say it's really good. Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter, and they say it's really decent. I've never seen it. I've seen all the other Anthony Hopkins ones, and they're not bad. They're just, there's a very strong diminishing returns, because um, Hannibal, which is the follow-up to Silence of the Lambs, um, isn't scary. It's just disturbing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, there's there's very few real scares in it, and it, it honestly becomes a little bit unbelievable because their Clarice's and uh, Hannibal's relationship in this movie seems very realistic and believable. Once you get into Hannibal, you start going, "Really? Okay." And then there was Red Dragon, which was—it's kind of—it's—it it's, was the first book in the series, right. and it's—it's so it's it's actually of, it's, the prequel to Silence of the Lambs, right? But then it—it it takes a really weird turn because they give Ed Norton, who's the detective in that one some kind of precognitive abilities maybe like he can imagine he either can imagine things really well or he actually has a sixth sense which is kind of sad considering how real this movie feels red dragon Mm. doesn't really at all yeah and they try and every movie since silence of the lambs that have featured these mm -hmm. characters they've really tried to recreate specific scenes specific moments again they try to give Hannibal Lecter creepy one-liners, or they try to do these things that never quite feel as genuine as they do in this. So, if you yeah. really want to see more, they're not terrible, but yeah. this is really it. This is all you need. Yeah, I would say avoid Hannibal Rising. Um, yeah, that was awful. And uh, I forgot. About I have. That one. Yeah, and I've heard that there is a it is maybe NBC or ABC has a show. Yeah, has like a series coming out. I think it got greenlit this year, so you might be seeing it next year or the year after i'm really conflicted and don't know how to feel about that at all because yeah. if it's anything like cannibal rising it is not necessary at all and is even ridiculous like well i and i don't quite know how you can do this on tv as well as you can in a movie unless it's like dexter you know it's, unless it's like dexter but even then it's on network tv it's not showtime yeah so i, I have really no idea what this show is going to be and i'm i'm going to check out the pilot because i kind of want to see what mm-hmm. they do with it but 
I can't say I'm excited about it. Yeah. So if you like this this movie, um, you know, both Hannibal and Red Dragon are okay, but they're not this movie. Yeah. I'm Hannibal saying. is the better one. It's directed by Ridley Scott. It's done better than, I would say, Red Dragon, because I think that was done by, I forget who, someone else. Um, Brett Ratner, I think. Um, but... Yeah, it's just, it's not as great. It just isn't. Julianne Moore plays Clarice Starling in the next one because Jodie Foster didn't like the script for Hannibal, so she didn't come back. And she she's fine, but the movie, it's just a very different movie. And it, meh. Yeah. Um, yeah some other things that you could watch. Um, uh, you know, the other big serial killer movie um, that I think everyone talks about is Seven. Pretty good. It's Fantastic. It's... If anything, it's more disturbing than this movie yeah. from a gruesome factor. Yeah. Um, so keep that in mind. It's not, it's not a very scary film. It's just overly disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, it's definitely edge of your seat kind of stuff as well. Um, and again, in that in that slow burn kind of way with a lot of really disturbing stuff that happens. Disturb, just, I mean, for people who haven't seen it, because it's basically about a killer who starts killing people based on the seven deadly sins. And so they really take those and really push them to a very grotesque place several times over. So, I mean, it's, it's not for the faint part. No. Um, let's see what else. Uh, Zodiac. Really disturbing. David Fincher. Another really disturbing. Yeah. Who, who was the director of seven? Very disturbing in a slightly different way. It's not, I, I wouldn't say it's quite as gruesome as seven was. Um, not as gruesome, but there's a, there's a particular scene in it that really just disturbed me for the rest of the film. And it almost put me off the entire film because of how real it seemed when this one particular person's being killed. And I, I, it, to the point of not liking it, that being said, I honestly really do like the film. Yeah. You know, it's, Um, you know, again, this is, this is, these are all kind of things that are in this serial killer genre. So it's, you know, liking it is kind of, and yeah. And Zodiac is kind of that, uh, is a true story, you know? And so it, it has a very interesting kind of, uh, storytelling format that you don't often see in films. That was kind of interesting. Mark Ruffalo and, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Um, you know, we already mixed, mentioned Dexter, um, which is kind of like the superhero version of <laughs> silence of the lambs. Um, <laughs> You know, From Hell is a very interesting movie. Interesting is a strong word. <laughs> I, I think I think I liked it better than you did, Scott, um, for some reason. But I would think I would. It has Johnny Depp in it and Heather Graham and other people, and it's based on a comic book. I just, I don't, I didn't appreciate the adaptation when it comes right down to it. Specifically giving Aberline supernatural powers, I thought was kind of dumb, considering how fascinating the real story is i don't know why they went that route if they had taken that out i probably would have liked the whole thing better but he starts having weird dreams because he's taking drugs and he's able to see things and understand things i'm like no yeah it's i mean it's it's definitely a uh stylized hunt for jack the ripper but it's it's uh, i found it very visually interesting and very fascinating Um, it is and it, it actually has a really interesting uh theory on who jack the ripper is which i did appreciate and enjoy yeah. and that actor ian holm is pretty uh mm-hmm. fantastic yeah um girl with the dragon tattoo is also kind of a serial killer movie mm-hmm. um has its own whole set of stuff uh, in, in some ways i think it does kind of what silence of the lambs does but mm-hmm. in a different way i think it's um you know it's very much a female-centric movie mm-hmm and it really deals with um, a lot of these interesting psychological kinds of things. 
um, especially for the main character, mm-hmm. but in a very different way. Um, it, what's interesting to me about that film is that it really is, to me, it's more about the characters than the mystery, the yeah. murder mystery, or yeah. the whatever mystery it is. Um, yeah, that's that's a rough movie too, though. I mean, that's maybe the roughest out of this whole lot that you're recommending. There's some really, really rough <laughs> scenes yeah. in yeah. it that are really... I, Again, as I say, as as I recommend these, keep in mind these are all pretty disturbing kind of movies at the end of the day. So, um, you know, also going back, we mentioned Hitchcock. Psycho is kind of the granddaddy of of a lot of this stuff. So that's a good one. And then, if you don't want to go quite as disturbing, but still are kind of interested in that psychological kind of mess with you just a little bit, something like The Game. Um, David has nothing to do with really serial killers. lived in this world, hasn't he? <laughs> Go with the Dragon's Tattoo, The Game, Zodiac, and Seven are all David Fincher films. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it, it, that one is... It's not really a scary movie. It's just more of kind of a what is going on kind of movie. It keeps you guessing and keeps you... You know, if you're... Not at all. I, I would not classify it as horror. It's definitely much more in that psychological thriller kind yeah. of thing. And much, uh, much easier to handle. Um, and I, I honestly agree with everything that Lauren has just said, and I'm going to couple it with just two other suggestions. I already mentioned Hannibal, um, which is a movie... I, I, I would recommend Hannibal over the other ones, but it's still not great. Um, the the part... Because to me, in my opinion, is there's a lot of people like Signs of the Lambs, and they like it for various reasons. One of the big things I really like is honestly the characters that come out of it and how believable they are and how you, you kind of hope you could be Clarice, but even she has her faults, and how scary Buffalo Bill and Hannibal are, and could you be pushed to that point? Um, so to me, I go to two very uh, phenomenal television shows. One is Breaking Bad, which we've mentioned over and over again on this podcast, um, but just a great character study. Um, season five is about to begin. I just finally caught Kelly up on season four. Um, and it's a, it's a show that you watch and it is kind of, I mean, it's easy to describe like, Oh, it's about this teacher who becomes a meth dealer. Um, but the character work in it is so phenomenal. Um, you really believe all the decisions that get made, even the ones that don't make any sense. You understand why they would make that decision. And it is a really interesting exploration of a very grimy, dirty, dark world that um, you don't want to visit, but you kind of, you know exists, and it probably exists next door, kind of a thing. Uh, the other one is a slightly different track. It's called Luther. Have you seen this, Lauren? Uh, you know, it's on my list, but I have not actually started watching I've it. I've only yet. seen the first two episodes, and I am hooked. Um, it's, I think there was only two seasons of it. It was a BBC show. Um, Idris Elba is the main actor in it, and he's pretty great. And it is a, it's a cop show. I mean, that is kind of what it is, but um, very interesting character stuff going on where he is really a tortured, tortured soul who walks that line. And it's really, it's about him. It's not really about, I mean, yes, there's investigations going on, but it's kind of in the same way, uh, mentioning like the girl dragon tattoo or even Sansa lambs where it's like, you have this bigger thing, but what's really interesting is just trying to figure out what makes this character work. Why is he making these decisions? Why is he acting that way? what would it take for you to be pushed that far? And if you were in a position of power like he is, what would happen? You know, it's, it's, I've really enjoyed it and I can't wait to see how the, this, the rest of the series plays out. Very cool. 
Well, there you go. That's a bunch of stuff to check out. Uh, again, your mileage is going to vary on all, <laughs> all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is um, a very divisive genre, and uh, people love and hate it. And we probably, for some people, we probably haven't gone deep enough into the horror. And for other people, we've already gone too far. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've nicely played to the middle that does not exist. So, uh, there we go. Um, all right, well, join us next time. Uh, slightly, I guess, brighter film. Um, it has raindrops keep falling on my head in it. Uh, it's number 73 on AFI's Top 100 list, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Love this film. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. So there, there's another spoiler. Um, so, yeah, we'll be talking about that next time. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Movies You Should, um, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Movies You Should, or at our website, moviesyoushouldlove.com. We would love to, especially the, some of these questions that we were asking, you know, towards the yeah. end of this. We, we really... I think we barely scratched the surface on some of these questions about why, why horror. That one. Why? Yeah, why do we have these? Why do we need these? And that's a question I'm going to have to revisit. So I would love for you guys to chime in and let me know what you think, because clearly I didn't have a great answer <laughs> because it's one of those things that, you know, why do we need any of these films when it comes right down to it? Are films mm-hmm. a relevant thing in our society? Why? Especially when you get into these darker places yeah because figure this out <laughs> yeah because you know not to start it again but i think it's really easy to make a case for you know a comedy film makes you laugh and feel good and everybody loves that so why do you have a film that maybe doesn't make you feel good you know what is the well, what I, is the validity of now that? that we're talking about it i can actually go back to my initial review of cabin in the woods because i had some theories on it because that that's a horror film that actually supposes a theory as to why we need the genre which is kind of interesting um, but yeah, please chime in. I want I want to discuss this because it is a it is a genre that I kind of have a hate hate relationship with, um, and so I would like to uh, either come to a better appreciation of it or just kind of discuss it and we can figure out why everybody else likes it. I don't know. Yeah, very very true. So all right, well we will see you next time. Yep. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. Yeah. And having seen... Do we need to pause? It sounds like you have a mailman. <laughs>